0: Coming up on this episode, we're going to tell you all about the incredible books we've been reading and the movies that we've been watching. Welcome
1: to episode 302 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. I'm Will Knauss and with me as always is my co-host, Mr. Jeff Adams.
0: Hello, everybody. This podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. Thank you to Katie and to Martej for joining the community recently. If you'd like more information about the bonus content we offer our patrons, go to patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast.
1: Hello, Rainbow Romance readers. We are so glad that you could join us for another
0: episode. Yes, indeed we are. Before we get into all of our reviews for this week, I want to tell you about a little bit of a change that you may have already noticed on our show notes page. Of course, we always link you to all of the books that we talk about in the show, and we've offered Amazon links since we started the show back in 2015. Last year, we added links to Libro.fm to provide you another place to get audiobooks, and as you know if you've heard us talk about it on the show, we love Libro.fm because of their support for local bookstores. Now we've also recently added links to Kobo so that you'll know when a book is available outside of Amazon. We heard from a couple of our listeners who, for various reasons, need or want to make a purchase outside of Amazon. So as we put the show notes together for each episode, anytime that we find a book that's not in Kindle Unlimited, which is usually a sign that it's available on a wider basis, we'll look to see if that book is on Kobo. And if it is, we will put that link into the show notes as well. Of course, book availability is always subject to change, but at least as an episode comes out, you will know what the options are. And thanks to the folks who got in touch with us to encourage us to make this change, we're very happy to make the book buying experience as easy as possible so that you can add books to your TBR.
1: So before we get to this week's book review segment, Jeff and I wanted to talk quickly about some of the movies that we have been watching recently, things that we've enjoyed, things that we found inspiring. First, that we think is definitely worth mentioning is the recent documentary Tina, available on HBO Max. Tina Turner's talent is a secret to nobody. (laughs) With all of her hits, her incredibly long and successful career, the details about her life story featured in her book, I Tina, and the biopic, What's Love Got to Do with It, you might think that a documentary covering her life and career might be a little bit redundant. Well, we are here to tell you that it is not. It is spectacular. It is wonderful. It's entertaining. It's inspiring. Tina, the new documentary essentially covers the entirety of her life and career up until this point, from her humble beginnings to her time with Ike Turner, to her breakout solo career and her life as she currently
0: lives it in Zurich. I've been a fan of Tina for forever. I mean, really, as I discovered her music first, in a class I actually took in college, I took a class in rock and roll music. It was a summer class. It filled in the humanities credit. And I was really into music in in my high school and college years and got introduced to some of the groundbreaking part that she and Ike played in some of the music back in the 60s and 70s, and then really focused on some of the work that she did with Phil Spector as well, because Phil Spector played such a, a piece of rock and roll history, of course, and then Everything that she did through the 90s and the early 2000s. So it was really interesting to see this laid out again in a new way from how it was done and what's left got to do with it and how it went forward from there. Essentially, she made her farewell appearance in the States late in 2019 when she attended the opening of Tina the Musical on Broadway. That was designed to be her farewell to her US fans. And to hear her sit down and go through everything essentially one last time to put her story out there, it was, as you said, it was really inspiring and to see everything that she'd overcome and all the success that she achieved to really, hopefully finding a little bit of peace with her current husband living in Zurich. I I absolutely loved this. HBO is doing such amazing music documentaries recently. We talked a few weeks back about the Bee Gees documentary as well. So yeah, some really good stuff there.
1: Yeah, this documentary is entertaining and inspiring in a number of different ways. Something that struck me as I was watching it is I think sometimes when you live your life alongside an artist's career, you forget about the volume of content that they've created over their lifetime. I felt that way when I went and saw the musical based on Gloria and Emilio Estefan, as that show is packed with hit after hit after hit, and you're like, oh yeah. (laughs) I love all these songs. And I felt the same way as we were watching this documentary. It's like, oh, God, yeah, Tina's been around forever. She's been kicking ass forever. And that documentary highlights that with some really spectacular historical stuff that's probably never been seen before, or at least hasn't been seen recently
0: like the Olivia Newton-John, Tony Tennille. Oh my
1: God, that was beautiful. TV special? It was a TV special <laughs> about, oh, oh my God, I would give anything to see that.
0: Yeah, I don't even know what network did it, but it was back in the day where they would do all these wacky TV musical specials, and it was an Olivia Newton-John special that somehow Tina and Tony Tennille were involved in. We need to track that down on YouTube if it exists. (laughs) God,
1: if it's out there, that would be amazing. But yeah, rare footage and footage that has not been seen in high definition ever. The documentary features a lot of really spectacular concert footage, most of which has been released to the public on VHS. Mm -hmm. And this was all recorded in standard def. So the chance to actually see this remastered, and HD is kind of rare and unique and kind of wonderful and a real showcase for her talent. Jeff and I have also been catching up on a few movies lately. We saw Late Night. It's available on Amazon right now and most other streaming services. This is a really delightful and insightful comedy written by and starring Mindy Kaling, who gets her shot as a diversity hire to be part of the writers room of a long running late night television show hosted by Emma Thompson. And the interactions between Thompson's character and Mindy Kaling are, of course, really funny and insightful as they sort of deal with the certain levels of hierarchy between talent and the writer's room and what goes on behind the scenes of a late night show. And the plot of the movie really focuses on how Emma Thompson has been doing this for a really long time, perhaps maybe a little too long. She's grown complacent. And the network is threatening to replace her. And it's through the new set of eyes provided by Mindy Kaling that they start to shake things up. And they started to rediscover their joy and their passion.
0: Yeah, it was an interesting look behind the scenes of a late night show. I mean, there have been other movies and other documentaries that have done it. But this one did it in a really interesting way because not only was it just behind the scenes of late night, but it was a woman hosting the late night show, which, of course, hasn't happened in U.S. television in decades since back when Joan Rivers had her show on Fox. But also, I really love the trajectory of Mindy's character in this show, because not only is she the diversity hire to this show, she came to the show from a chemical plant. She was working as like some quality assurance person at this chemical plant, but she had been studying the show that she went to work on for years. She was a super fan. She understood the show. She even understood how the show had become complacent before she went to work there. And the fact that she got in there as somebody with no writing history at all and what she did, it was a really nice kind of dual plotline running here between Mindy coming into this job and being able to essentially play with the big boys but also how Emma Thompson's late night host character evolved as she was having her career threatened by the network and really seeing where her career had gone wrong over the years. It was funny, but also kind of had some really nice dramatic elements too. I really enjoyed it. Something else we really enjoyed recently was the Netflix comedy
1: Moxie. This was directed by and co-stars Amy Poehler. It's about a teenage girl who's living her life and doing her thing in high school when the new girl in school, shakes things up, and sort of opens her eyes to all of the patriarchal bullshit that surrounds their everyday lives. And she's really angry, and she talks with her mom. She wants to know what she can do about it. And she takes inspiration from her mom, Amy Poehler, and her riot girl past. And what she decides to do is she makes a zine and calls it Moxie, and she starts distributing it through school. It's sort of a feminist manifesto that riles everybody up. She ends up forming a moxie group with some of her like-minded friends. This, of course, leads to clashes with the school administration who are heavily invested in upholding the patriarchy. So hilarity and drama and enlightenment ensues.
0: It was such an enjoyable film. I mean, Amy Poehler for one thing, having Amy Poehler direct something is like having been Kaling writing something. These two women are just brilliant at presenting comedy That also makes you look at important themes. Social commentary. Social commentary, yes. And it just all came together here. I feel like this movie sits alongside other shows like HBO Max's Generation, Good Trouble on Freeform, books like the one we talked to Robbie Couch about last week with the Sky Blues. These all have these similar social commentary themes and are really pushing back on the patriarchy for all of the just, as you put it, bullshit that they put everybody through. And this movie just nailed what it was doing. And some of the nuances too, because the girl who starts the Moxie Club causes a lot of friction with her very best friend in the world who was comfortable living the life that she had on her trajectory to college and didn't understand why her friend was all of a sudden causing all of this uprising. So it was interesting to see that too, how the two friends had their falling out, but then came back together at the end. It was really enlightening and fun and more people should be shaking up the patriarchy, man. (laughs) And one last thing that we watched recently was the last blockbuster over on Netflix. This is a documentary about the very last blockbuster video that is still open in Bend, Oregon. They've even managed to survive the pandemic and continue to be a video store in this small middle Oregon town. It's a very interesting look at the cycle of the blockbuster video company from being the dominant force in video in the US to having essentially been wiped off the map everywhere except in Bend, Oregon. I knew a lot of the blockbuster story. There were pieces of it that I didn't know that it wasn't really Netflix that destroyed the company. There were a lot of other factors going on besides the rising of DVD distribution by mail and then eventually streaming. But the interesting thing to me in the whole story was how this one blockbuster has managed to keep itself going, managed to keep the name of the store and really be this community spot in the town that they're in reminded me in a lot of ways of what the local independent bookstore can be in a community. It also was extremely nostalgic for me because I spent about three years during college working in a mom and pop video store in Alabama. And so revisiting the concept of renting out videos and interacting with customers and getting the returns back from the return bin and people circling to see what people are returning on a Friday night. It was like, oh, I remember those days, man. And I never worked at a Blockbuster. And in fact, Blockbuster did ultimately in Tuscaloosa wipe out most of the independent video stores, ultimately, including the ones I worked at, although I was already had moved on by the time that Blockbuster did that damage. But it's, it's a really nice documentary, tells a little bit about how Blockbuster did die, but really the heart of the movie uh, is the family that runs this last Blockbuster. So if you want a little nostalgia uh, on video and also hear from a lot of celebrities who either have fond memories of video stores or who actually worked in Blockbusters in the early part of their careers, check out The Last Blockbuster on Netflix. So, moving over to books, the first one that I want to talk about this week is Infinity Reaper by Adam Silvera. Now, Adam left us on a big old cliffhanger at the end of Infinity Sun with many characters in peril, including our two heroes, with one on the brink of death and one making an incredibly bad choice. Now, I'm going to do my best to dodge and weave around spoilers for either book, but I'll say right here that I loved Infinity Reaper even more than the first book, which I liked a whole bunch. As things get more intense for Emil, Brighton, and their gang of friends and heroes. Now, if you want to avoid any possibility of spoilers, I'd recommend to jump ahead by about five minutes. Now, I will say that Infinity Reaper opens exactly where Infinity Sun left off as we get through the end of the big battle over the Phoenix's blood and who exactly might get to drink the potion that's been created. Brighton showed exactly how desperate he was for powers by drinking it down before getting Emil out to safety. When I talked to Adam in episode 291 about Infinity Reaper, he said, and I quote, everything that could go wrong goes wrong, end quote, and you know what? That only really scratches the surface of it. I love how many plots are in play in this book, and all of those are actually made possible with the multiple characters who end up with points of view here. The core, of course, are Emil and Brighton. Emil desperately wants to bind his powers, And those of people like him to really put it into the ongoing battle that's been happening between the spellcasters and people with power and people without powers and the celestials who get their power because they do this alchemy. He wants it all to end. Now, Brighton just crackles with eagerness as he figures out, eh, mostly figures out anyway, how to start using his powers, which are also actually trying to kill him too because of the reaction of the potion that he drank. He's a bit power mad, really, as he seems to have lost a fair bit of common sense along the way, because he mainly wants to shoot first and ask questions later. Maribel is also out to avenge her lost love by any means necessary. So these two kind of become a power couple in some ways to really try to, what they think will end the war, but also in some ways can just be making it worse. The major plot here centers around presidential candidate Senator Iron, who happens to be Ness's father, Ness, who we met in the first book, who's a shapeshifter. He is a good guy, bad guy, maybe something in between. Uh, Still kind of questioning how Ness will play out in the long run here, but I think he's a good guy. He and Emil certainly had some spark too in the first book. Ness is quite unprepared for some of the things that he has to do as he's kind of forced by his father. Senator Iron is simply evil. Um, as he works to manipulate the American people into electing him by using the very people he wants to destroy to help him push his message forward. It's intense, it's intriguing, and Adam does a really amazing job making this into a page-turner. Among my favorite things in this book, Emile and Brighton's trip to a stronghold where the phoenixes live. In this alternative world where so much is recognizable, this was truly a place of magic and wonder where phoenixes and their human counterparts live. Watching meal move through this place because he loves phoenixes so much and learns more about these animals and finding company with some people who are essentially like him now just made me crazy happy. I love these passages so, so much. And it provided some of the more heart-wrenching moments in this while also providing some really emotionally powerful moments too. I am very much team Emil (laughs) and rooting for him to accomplish his goal to helping end the war in the most peaceful way possible, and also to find peace for himself. That said, I also quite enjoy Brighton's story. He's so eager, so excited to jump into the fray, and yet he's so volatile if he perceives that anyone is trying to slight him in the least for doing what he thinks is right. And of course, what he thinks is right often isn't truly right. The interesting thing, at least in the way that I read it, is that Brighton could easily go down the same path as some of the very people that he's trying to stop. Most of all, I love how Adam brings Emil and Brighton to the page, different sides of the same coin. There are fundamental things that they both want, such as the safety of their loved ones, but they have very, very different approaches on how they're going to accomplish that. One of the other things I loved here so much is the action on the page and there's so many different types of action that that happens here. There are some tremendous escapes, some really incredible rescues and the fight sequences are really over the top. I can't imagine writing this kind of material and the things you have to think about in the staging of all of it. I love how Adam presents these things, often shifting points of view within the battle so that we get like all of this coverage from multiple sides of what's happening. Just as important, though, are the quiet moments between the battles, especially with Emil and what goes on at the Phoenix Stronghold, but also when Emil and Ness finally get back together again. There's also some great moments between Brighton and Prudencia, too, as they start to explore possibly a relationship. I really loved my second visit to this alternative New York with Infinity Reaper, and I can't wait for the third and final book to come out next year to see exactly how Adam Silvera ends this
1: saga. Well, from your urban fantasy, I'd like to switch things up and talk about the historical The Gentleman and the Lamplighter by Summer Devon. So in this story, Giles can't sleep after the loss of someone who is very dear to him. So he walks the streets of London alone in his sorrow. One night just before dawn, he encounters a lamplighter shutting off the gas lamps on his street and they end up chatting. John has always been curious about Giles, the man he's seen so often taking these solitary walks that he comes up with these fanciful tales to explain Giles's nocturnal constitutionals. Giles finds that he looks forward to accompanying John as he makes his rounds. And strolling through the quiet and dark streets, they talk about any number of things ranging from benign pleasantries to the emotional burdens that they each share, each with their own individual losses. John admits that, before he lost his wife, they had a unique understanding concerning their preferences for companionship, and this leads Giles to safely confide in the most vague and gentlemanly way possible that the man he lost was also the man he was in love with. John's invitation for tea gives them an opportunity to explore their interest in one another. A gentle kiss and a soft caress leans to an enthusiastic and emotionally freeing tumble into John's bed. His newfound happiness leads Giles to finally face talking to the widow of the man he loved. And while he is out of town getting some closure, John interprets Giles' absence as regret about their night together. And it's just too painful to walk past Giles' house every night, so he switches routes with another lamplighter. When John no longer shows up on his rounds, Giles goes for a walk and comes across a bookstore that John mentioned that he liked. John's love of books and theater were often a topic of their long conversations. The shopkeep explains to Giles that John is not only fond of literature and theater, but he is also a playwright as well. When John walks into the shop, they are joyfully reunited, and Giles explains that if his short time with John has proven anything is that he'd much rather choose happiness over sorrow. The gentleman and the lamplighter playwright definitely have a lot more happiness in their lives together to look forward to. What struck me about this story is there's a wonderful sense of gentle kindness at play. When Giles and John take their walks, they're able to discuss things and support one another in ways that no one else in their lives can. They're both working through feelings of loss, and it's through these discussions they realize that not only are they in love, but they're also capable of coming to terms with their sadness in order to find joy on the other side. So thank you to Summer Devon for writing such an incredibly sweet and gentle story. I also want to give a quick shout out to Mark James, who I thought did a particularly good job in narrating the audiobook as well.
0: Just the title of this book sounds so swoony perfect. I mean, The Gentleman in the Lamplighter, it just sounds like you're going to get something very sweet. I'm so glad you enjoyed that and got to continue your historical track a little bit as well. I'm going to swing us back to New York now, although modern day New York, and we're going to dive into a mystery. A Friend of the Dark by Gregory Ash and C.S. Poe was such a treat. As I've been working my way back into romantic suspense this year, I'm really glad to be back reading some Gregory Ashe as well, who is one of my very favorite authors in the genre. This is also my first mystery suspense book from C.S. Poe, as I've previously only read her contemporary romances, which is actually quite a gap in my reading and one I've known that I need to fix for some time now because she's always getting good marks on her mystery and suspense books. A Friend of the Dark is book one of the Auden and O'Callaghan Mysteries, and we open with Rufus O'Callaghan finding a dead body. Now, among the things that Rufus does to earn a living is being a confidential informant to the police. An officer he works with has called him to come to his apartment to get details on something that he needs picked up. Upon arrival, Rufus finds the detective dead. Now, Sam Auden is making his way to New York City because of the death of his friend. The detective and Sam served together in the army and were quite close, quite very, very close at times, and word that his friend died by suicide doesn't seem right to him at all. That's not the guy that he knew. So Sam comes to the city to find out what happened, and when he arrives at the apartment, he finds Rufus inside hanging out eating a bag of chips. Now I have to say that this moment is one of the cutest meat cutes that shouldn't be a meat cute ever. Rufus tries to play off the fact that he belongs in this apartment and Sam is trying to explain why he broke in. Now neither of these guys is particularly good at playing their roles in this moment and they try to bluster their way through it. It's a wonderful bringing together of these two men who don't want to work together but yet see the need that they have to and there's an undeniable little bit of spark between these two as well. Rufus and Sam both want to figure out who killed their friend. And on the other hand, working together doesn't come easy at all. Sam has a lot of baggage with him, especially being in the hustle and bustle of New York, which is all of this sound and distraction. He's got some PTSD and other things going on. And except for down and dirty hookups, he's also really not that much into people. Rufus, on the other hand, has lived off the streets much of his life. He's not trusting at all, but he's also wildly smart and is more apt to steal a book Than anything else. Rufus and Sam complement each other in many ways, primarily because their minds approach issues differently. And that can also often lead them to some breakthroughs, as one will catch something the other doesn't, or occasionally, as they're talking things out, they'll start to spark these ideas off of each other, which is really great to watch on the page. They've also got to push through a lot to get to a place, however, where they're actually good at working together. The mystery at hand here is as twisty and turny as anything I've ever read from Gregory Ashe's Hazard and Somerset books or the Borealis investigation series. And Greg and C.S. together have created an intense, interesting case to solve that also doesn't get overly dark even as it deals with some quite serious issues. Essentially, there's a double mystery here because it's not only what happened to their friend the detective but why it happened in the first place and what he was investigating that put him in such danger. It was just brilliant as Sam and Rufus, neither of them being in law enforcement in any way, unless you want to count Rufus's uh, side thing as a confidential informant. But boy, do these guys do some incredible sleuthing. Jessica Fletcher would have been so impressed with amateur (laughs) sleuthing in progress here. And I was really blown away by the reveals. It was truly jaw-dropping what had happened here. The mystery actually goes a lot better in this book than the romance does. It's quite difficult for these two, even with that definite desire between them, to actually come together. In the moments when it does, they are amazingly sweet and tender, but boy, when it doesn't, is it rough going. That these two quite different people with all that they carry have a shot is really wonderful. And full disclosure to those who like to know where the happy ending lies, this book does not end with it. That said, knowing how long it took Gregory to actually let Hazard and Somerset finally come together for a happy moment, I feel sure that Sam and Rufus are going to sort it out in the coming books because I certainly loved everything about this mystery and these guys. Speaking of coming books, A Friend of the Fire, which is book two in this series releases on April 29th. And I'm happy to say that Gregory Ash and C.S. Poe are going to be on the podcast on Monday, May 3rd to talk all about this series and what brought them together to write. Spoiler alert, it actually started at GRL 2019 in Albuquerque doing a panel that Will moderated, Uh, and you'll have to tune into the interview to hear more about that. So congratulations on bringing these two authors together for such a good book. (laughs) You're welcome, world. (laughs)
1: So from a mystery thriller to a really delightful rom-com, I want to talk about Bridesmaids by Sidney Smith. Cooper is accused of being commitment-phobic, and he gets dumped by his boyfriend just before leaving for a weekend wedding. Cooper heads to Montana, where he'll serve as maid of honor, or bridesmaid, for his best friend Lisa, who is marrying her longtime beau, Travis. After arriving in Big Sky Country, he is pulled over by the local sheriff's deputy who just so happens to be former high school star quarterback and small-town golden boy Will, the guy Coop shared a very sexy kiss with 10 years ago after a Friday night football game. Cooper is having trouble handling his rental car, because it's a stick shift, so Will drives him into town. On the short ride there, he learns that Will is now out of the closet, and he will also be Travis's best man. So they're going to be seeing a whole lot more of each other over the next couple of days. In a conversation with Lisa involving copious amounts of wine, she asked Cooper why if he and Will are both single, why not have a little bit of fun? But the thing is, on their drive, Will didn't mention the kiss. And that means that Will either doesn't remember it or it meant nothing to him, which is a heartbreaking thought because it meant so much to Cooper. At the wedding rehearsal, Coop and Will are asked to wrangle the ring bearer, Lisa and Travis's great Dane Fred. Once that is handled with comedic results, and after the rehearsal dinner is over, they share a few tequila shots and a rousing round of karaoke, a particularly passionate duet of I've Had the Time of My Life. It's then that Cooper decides to take his shot and he kisses Will, a shot that pays off because Will invites Cooper back to his place. After a passionate night together and a sexy morning follow-up, Cooper realizes that his commitment issues might be due to the fact that he's been in love with someone for the past 10 years hint that someone is Will, but it isn't until the ceremony that they're able to actually talk about what happened the night before. Cooper's insecurity about that long-ago kiss and Will's inability to acknowledge whatever it is that they have leads to misunderstanding and miscommunication. Now, the ceremony itself is beautiful, and at the reception, Cooper concludes his bridesmaid's duties with a heartfelt toast about the bride and groom and the joy of finding your person. Heartsick over how his opportunity with Will has fallen apart, Coop leaves the reception early. And the next morning, while driving his rental car to the airport, he gets pulled over again. It's Will, sleepless and still in his tux from the day before. He explains that Coop left before he could give his toast, in which he agreed with everything Cooper said in his speech, and that he had found his person before he truly even found himself. And by his person, he, of course, means Coop. On the side of the road, they share the cutest, most rom-commy, schmoopy admission of love. I loved it so much. (laughs) And six months later, we get a brief glimpse of their life together in Montana and the wonderful things that their future holds. Now, you all know I love a good small-town contemporary romance, and bridesmaids deliver everything I could have ever wanted and a whole lot more. And also, hey, nice guy heroes, ding, ding, ding. Cooper and Will are likable and endearing, a pair of guys that are super easy to root for. I also really like the secondary characters, who in their own ways are all working really hard to make sure that our guys achieve their happily ever after. This story has got so much heart and humor. It's a genuine feel-good read, a small-town romance filled with charm, also a second-chance romance, and you all know I love those. So thank you to Sydney Smith for crafting a story that I absolutely adored. And also kudos to Teddy Hamilton. He does a wonderful job giving voice to the characters and bringing the story to life. I want to quickly note that Bridesmaids is an Audible original and is available through the Audible app and on Amazon. And because it's an Audible original, it is not available at this point in time in either ebook or paperback.
0: That sounded absolutely delightful as a rom-com should be. I'm glad you got to try out an Audible original. I keep seeing the ads for those and I've been wondering kind of what their jump into essentially what I would call audio fiction, given that there's no paperback or ebook connection to it has been quite interesting. So I look forward to maybe digging into some more of those. So I actually do have one actual romance to talk about after doing a mystery and doing suburban fantasy. I love the jock nerd trope so, so much and all of the goodness that it can bring as each person usually discovers something more about themselves. As soon as I saw that Eli Easton and Tara Lane were bringing out a new series about nerds versus jocks, I was so intrigued. And then they dropped the stunning cover for schooling the jock and I knew that that had to just vault to the top of my TBR really before I even read the blurb because the, the, just the cover was so striking. Holy crap folks did I love this book so much and how it played with the jock nerd trope so perfectly. We've got a frat house rival here. On opposite sides of the streets, we've got the super smart Sigma Mu Tows uh, or the Poindexters as the jocks call them. And on the other side of the street are the football players with the Alpha Lambda Alpha house or the a as the nerds call them. <laughs> Right? It's a good name. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> they play pranks on each other, they talk trash, and they generally just don't get along. One prank goes very, very wrong though, as the SMTs nearly burn down the ALA house. The Dina's student has had enough. Either these guys learn to work together or he is going to disband the houses. He directs that the SMTs have to add members of the ALAs to their quiz bowl team, while the ALAs have to add SMTs to the flag football team, thereby throwing each house into total pandemonium. This is very serious business, though, because these aren't leisure activities. They're competitive, nationally ranked competitions. Quiz Bowl captain Dobbs is stuck with footballer Jesse and has just a matter of weeks to get Jesse ready to compete at a regional quiz bowl that is now a requirement for the SMTs since they are bringing on somebody who is brand new to quiz bowl competition in the middle of the season. No one is happy about this. Dobbs doesn't want his team messed up. and Jesse has a ton of other commitments besides his off-season football training and the nursing degree that he's pursuing. But no one wants the houses disbanded, Plus, there's also a side bet on which house will actually do better in the new competition roles that they have to play. And here's the first thing I loved about this book. Usually the jock is the alpha in these scenarios, bringing kind of the nerd out of the shell and things like that. Dobbs does not need any kind of confidence boost or need to break out of any shell. He is just as much an alpha as Jesse is. And What makes this so good is that they are slightly different alphas. Each has their thing, but when they clash, they both really know how to wield their power. Now, despite the rivalry, both guys feel a bit of a pull towards each other in the looks department. Dobbs is out and proud, but Jesse not so much. Jesse's not quite sure what to do with his feelings because he has suppressed them for so very long because being gay just can't work for the life that he has. But the more time he spends with Dobbs, the more his defenses kind of crumble. It is so cute and sweet and tender, but also really terrifying for him. Dobbs also discovers that there's a lot more to Jesse than he ever imagined. While he's often considered Jesse to be kind of standoffish and someone who believes himself better than everybody else. All of that is turned on its head when he's forced to go home with Jesse because of a family emergency. But they have to study, so Dobbs goes along to help with the coaching for Quiz Bowl. He finds that Jesse was raised on a farm, has autistic twin brothers, and he has parents who are very good people just trying to take care of their family. He sees a whole different side of Jesse as he works to take care of things at home, balance school, and help his brothers calm down after an injury has forced one of them into the hospital. These sequences at home at Jesse's family farm warmed my heart so much and honestly made me weep at times just seeing how Jesse in this environment operates, but also how Dobbs, who came so far out of his element here, but had such amazing affinity for Jesse's brothers. It was just one of the sweetest things ever. And the romance here? Oh, wow. Mm. As these guys let their defenses down and really get to know each other, it is so wonderful. For all of the bluster, Jesse's truly a nice guy and wants to do right, including doing right by the Quiz Bowl team. And Dobbs also learns how to look past the surface and find that there's more to books and to learning, and he ends up and makes a real connection here. It's not always easy, uh, especially with both of the frats caught up in the competition which sometimes overrode these guys' good decision-making capabilities. But of course, the romance all works out in the end, and I adored the epilogue of this book so, so much. This is a brilliant world and story setup that Tara and Eli have created here. I got so caught up in the competition aspect of it, but also Dobbs and Jesse honestly have elevated to be one of my favorite all-time couples, because this story hits so many things that I love, especially, hey, guess what? Nice guy's doing nice things. Yay! (laughs) Letting your true self come through and taking care of family and friends. There were so many awesome feels here. And I have no doubt that this book is going to end up on my best of list for 2021. I've already started coaching the nerd, which flips to the other side, looking at one of the nerds who has to go play flag football. So you'll be hearing about that one soon. Plus, I'm happy to say that Tara and Eli are going to be coming on the show May 17th, which is just a week before the third book, which is called Head to Head, comes out on May 25th. If you haven't dove into this series yet, I just can't recommend it enough. It was just so, so good. All right, that will do it for book and movie reviews. This episode's transcript is brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read our conversation and the reviews for yourself, you can simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at biggayfictionpodcast.com. Don't forget that show notes page has a link to everything we talked about in this episode as well.
1: All right. I think that will do it for this episode. Coming up next in episode 303, Anna Zabo joins us to talk about their newest book, Cinnamon Roll,
0: which is part of the Bold Brew shared universe. I'm so excited that we get to have Anna on the show. We've wanted them for so very long and I was excited to see that they were part of this Bold Brew universe. So not only do we get to find out about the universe itself, set in a coffee shop, but this book is so very good. So it's going to be a good conversation.
1: Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, stay strong, be safe, and above all else, keep
0: turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Folly Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Our original theme music is composed by Daryl Banner.